I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon and this is episode 22 the rise of Moscow. Thanks for listening in. So in the last episode, we covered what was going on with the Mongols, taking things from 1242, when the Khans abruptly ceased their military campaigns in Europe and travelled back east to choose a new leader, to the year 1255 and the death of Batu Khan. We looked at the Republic of Novgorod, and checked out why it was different to the rest of the Rus principalities and how it functioned. And then we ended up covering the life and times of St. Alexander Nevsky. This week, we'll start by doing a mini State of the Nation, and then we'll be looking at the decline of Vladimir and the rise of Moscow, and we should end up somewhere around the year 1340. Well, that's the aim. And that's nearly 80 years in one go, so strap yourselves in. Or, prepare to strap yourselves in, because just before we start, I just want to run through a couple of messages and do some blatant self-promotion. So first of all, thanks go out to Lee Fantinelle, Ms. Anthropic, which is a great name, uh, DW071720E, and Jake who have all followed the podcast. Thank you, guys. It really is massively appreciated. And secondly, if any of you want to get in touch and ask me a question or send in a comment, then you can in a number of different ways. You've got Twitter, and on Twitter, the podcast is on as History Russia one uh, You've got the Podbean phone app or the Podbean website, which is um, historyofrussia.podbean.com. What is good old email? And that's nordicworld, all one word, at outlook.com. And then finally, you could always drop by Apple Podcasts and either leave me a nice five-star rating or a comment. 
Okay, enough already. Let's buckle up and do some history of Russia. So it's 1263, and on the surface, the Rus have recovered from the bloodshed, destruction and despair of the Mongol invasion. And economically, things are ticking along nicely. What with the new east-to-west trading routes having been opened up, and a new super-efficient courier system having been established. However, politically for the princes and boyars, and economically for the common people, things are in a bit of a mess. For a brief while, Russia's great hero, Alexander Nevsky, had offered a glimpse of what could be achieved with his stunning victories against the Livonians and Swedes but with no one on the horizon either willing or able to take on his mantle or legacy, the Rus had gone from running the largest country in Europe to the humiliation of being a group of Mongolian-owned principalities, whose leaders were summoned, often arbitrarily, to either Sarai or Karakorum, where the Khans played the princes off against one another, whose day-to-day -day administration was overseen by Mongol officials, and whose Western approaches were under constant threat of renewed invasion by various Eastern European entities. Although at least Nievsky's victories and reputation were going to keep that particular threat at bay, for a while anyway. Geopolitically then, the Rus were very much between the proverbial rock of Mongol occupation and the proverbial or imagined hard place of European incursions. And then for those at the lower end of society, the farmers, the labourers, artisans and merchants, daily life had become even more nasty, brutish and short. Simply because of the tribute and the taxes that their nominal lords, the princes, were now having to pay to the Khans. Basically, if you were a Rus prince or boyar, you didn't pay the Mongols from out of your own pocket. No, what you did was to collect it, or forcibly take it, from those at the bottom of the pile, and anyone who couldn't pay would either be conscripted into the military or sold into slavery. And there's only so much that people can take, and the sources tell us of various uprisings or tax riots, the biggest of these occurring in 1262 amongst the northeastern Rus cities. But nothing was going to change in the short term. The Golden Horde's grip via the princes was like a vice and there was very little that the average Joe could do. Ironically though, and this would have added insult to injury, the Orthodox Church, like some of our established churches today, was incredibly well off, but was exempt from taxation due to the importance that the Mongols attached to religious toleration. So that's the overall picture. Now let's narrow our focus and investigate how things are, are doing in the Principality of Vladimir. Now you might be thinking, why do I need to know about what's going on in Vladimir? The Mongols are in charge, Novgorod is where the money is, and I'm really not sure if any of this is really important. Well, if you're thinking along those lines, you would perhaps have a point. However, as you've no doubt worked out, Vladimir isn't going to exist in its current form for too much longer and Moscow will become the next Rus centre of power. And so I think it's important to look at why this happened, rather than just presenting it as a fait accompli. 
So bear with me. In fact, don't stop bearing with me as I step through the usual jumble of names and dates and try to make some sense of it all. After Alexander Nevsky's death in 1263, two men were in the running to succeed him, and they were his brothers Andrei and Yaroslav. Now we've already met Andrei, who, if you remember, had been kicked out of Vladimir after a quarrel with Nevsky back in the 1250s, and, had, who, and who had eventually escaped across the Baltic to Sweden. Well, now he's back. But the problem is, another one of Nevsky's brothers, Yaroslav, is also on the scene. And you're probably ahead of me at this point, we've been down this route before, Andrei and Yaroslav can't agree on who should get to be the main man. And so, like a couple of naughty children, they went to ask Dad for a decision. And in this case, Dad is the Mongol Khan. And the decision came down in favour of Yaroslav, probably because of Andrei's past record as a bit of a pain in the backside and being completely untrustworthy when it came to financial matters. Now, whilst Yaroslav took the title of Grand Prince of Vladimir, he didn't actually reside there nor was he the remotest bit interested in the former capital. His centre of power was a place called Tver, uh, which is spelled T-V-E-R, which he had received as an appanage from his father Yaroslav II back in the 1240s. And so that's where he continued to live and rule, both as, a, both as the Prince of Tver and the Grand Prince of the, of the Rus. And going forward, this is going to set a precedent. The title of the Grand Prince of Vladimir continued to be the most prominent in the Rus lands, but it was now simply an honorific and had ceased to have any realistic association with the physical city or principality. A bit like what happened to most of the British arist aristocratic titles throughout the centuries. And so at the same time that Tver and later Moscow and indeed a handful of other places were becoming more important, Vladimir, in much the same way that Kiev had after its decline in the 12th century, became relegated to a bit of a political backwater. Even though the main man in the Orthodox Church, the Metropolitan of Kiev, set up shop in Vladimir in the latter part of the 13th century, which I suppose continues to give the old place a veneer of respectability. Anyway, Andrei scuttled off to Novgorod, and Yaroslav III settled down to rule. But unfortunately for him, his reign only lasted eight years, and by 1271, he was dead and gone. He was succeeded by yet another one of his brothers, Vasily of Kostrom, and this is the last of Yaroslav II's sons that will feature in the narrative, I promise you. Vasily again took the title of Grand Prince of Vladimir, but ruled from his headquarters in Kostroma. And just in case you were wondering, both Tver and Kostroma were located in the northeastern part of the Rus lands, not too far away from Moscow. Vasily died in 1276, and for then, for the next 27 years, the throne passed backwards and forwards between Alexander Nevsky's middle two sons, Andrei III of Gorodietz and Dmitri of Pereslavl. Now, Nievsky's eldest son, another Vasily, had died back in 1271. And his youngest son, Daniel, 
who was probably named after our old friend Daniel or Danilo of Halic, had been given the tiny and almost insignificant territory of Moscow, where nothing much had happened for the past 100 years. And whilst his two elder brothers played the decades-old game of fraternal musical chairs, Daniel, tucked away out of the limelight, for now, slowly and steadily started to transform his new fiefdom into a regional power base. And his first move was the founding of not one, but two Orthodox monasteries, the Danilov, or St. Daniel, which is a nice touch, and the Lord's Epiphany, both of which were situated on the right bank of the Moskva River, some five miles away from the original Moscow Kremlin, which had been destroyed during the Mongol invasion, but was now being rebuilt. And these rebuilding works also included the first stone-built church to appear in Moscow, which was dedicated to the great Greek martyr Demetrius of Thessaloniki. But another thing that started to get built was Daniel's reputation as a wise and politically astute leader. In the 1290s, he got involved in his brothers Dimitri and Andre's power struggles, both with each other and the upcoming man of the age, Mikhail of Tver. But Daniel did his talking in the council chamber rather than on the battlefield. And anyway, he had his own problems to solve because Moscow's nascent rise had started to gain some unwanted attention. In 1296, Constantine, the prince of Riazan, tried to capture Moscow with the help of a Mongol force. But in a rare show of military strength, Prince Daniel defeated this army, and five years later marched into Riazan, took the prince as his prisoner, and managed to obtain the fortress of Kolomna, in, chain, in exchange for the release of the ruler of Riazan. And this was an important acquisition as now Daniel controlled the whole length of the Moskva River. And things got better because in 1302 his childless nephew and ally, Ivan of Periaslavl, bequeathed to Daniel all of his lands. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But the Riazan episode aside, Daniel's nearly 30-year reign in Moscow was peaceful and successful. He established generally good relations with the Khans, and according to the sources, he was popular and respected by his subjects for his meekness, humility, and his peaceful nature. But all good things have to come to an end. I'm sorry if you didn't know that. And by 1304, 
Daniel and his two bickering brothers were dead, and this left the stage empty for Prince Mikhail of Tver to become the new Grand Prince. And things started well for Mikhail. He had no rivals for the throne. He was quickly ratified as a new ruler by the Khan, and even Novgorod seemed happy as they invited him in to be their prince as well. And so with everything appearing to be calm, peaceful and settled, he decided that his time would be most usefully and strategically spent at the Khan's court in Sarai. And so he made a series of lengthy trips east in the hope of establishing himself as the indispensable go-to man of the Rus lands. But I think as we've seen, nothing is ever peaceful and settled in the Rusiskaya Zemna for long. And whilst Mikhail was away schmoozing with the Mongols, Prince Yuri of Moscow, Daniel's son, started to exert his influence over the northeastern Rus lands, and, more importantly, Veliki Novgorod, which was fertile ground as it was fed up with Mikhail's continued absence. So news reached Mikhail over in Sarai that things were going pear-shaped back in the west, and with the help of a Mongol army, he headed west and was able to re-establish himself back in Novgorod. But Yuri was nowhere to be found, because whilst Mikhail had marched west, he had set off in the opposite direction, and in a complete turnaround had managed to obtain Mongol blessing for his own claim to the throne, and to seal the deal, Yuri had married the Khan's sister, Konchaka. And then even more remarkably, or strangely, Yuri and another Mongol army, headed by a general named Kavgadai, were on their way west. But things didn't go to plan, because on the 22nd of December 1317, Mikhail's forces defeated Yuri's at a village called Botanievo, 25 miles from Tver, and somehow also managed to capture Konchaka, Yuri's new wife. But, frustratingly for Mikhail, not Yuri himself. And then just when you think that things couldn't get any more farcical, Konchaka, the Khan's sister, went and died. Now we're not told how or why this happened, and it's hard to believe that Mikhail would have had her killed as politically there was so little to gain and so much to lose. I'm guessing that he realised that getting out of this particular scrape wasn't going to be easy. Anyway, having mulled things over for a few days, he decided that honesty was the best policy. And so he released Kavgadai, the Mongol general, and instructed him to return to Sarai and tell the Khan the truth about what had happened to his sister. But as Vivian says in Pretty Woman, big mistake, big, huge, because Kavgadai did almost exactly as he was told. He just stated his version of the truth, i.e. Mikhail had murdered Konchaka. Oh, and he also threw in a couple of extras like how Mikhail was refusing to pay tribute and how he was aiming to make war on the Khan. And Mikhail might as well have done, because months later he was summoned to Sarai on some administrative pretext, and on the 22nd of November 1318 he was, yep, you've guessed it, eliminated. Luckily then, if we can believe most of what I've just recounted, 
Yuri, minus a wife, gets the main prize. But he should have perhaps been more careful for what he wished for, because the sources tell us that as the Grand Prince, he was a hated and distrusted figure. Plus Mikhail's son, the superbly named Dmitri the Terrible Eyes, that is a name, was hell-bent on revenge. Okay, long story short, four years later in 1322, Dmitri finally caught up with Yuri and murdered him. Four years after that, Dmitri gets his comeuppance and is murdered by the cart. And following the brief reign of his brother, Alexander of Tver, in 1238, the Grand Princedom, for what it's worth, is bestowed upon Ivan I of Moscow, who was Daniel's son and Yuri's brother. And it's during Ivan's reign that Moscow really became the most important of the Rus principalities. And according to a number of historians, that was due to the following factors. And the first one was that the Moscow principality was situated in the middle of the Rus lands, and so it was more protected from invasion from either east or west than, say, Novgorod, Ryazan or Tver. Secondly, the relative safety of the Moscow region resulted in an influx of working and tax-paying people who were tired of constant raids elsewhere and who actively relocated to Moscow from the other Russian regions. Thirdly, Moscow had established itself as a key trading centre along the route between the Volga and Novgorod. Four, the head of the Russian church, Metropolitan Peter, relocated from Vladimir to Moscow, which not only enhanced the city in a spiritual sense, but also had a very positive impact for the royal family. Number five, and I think this is the key one, the Mongols abandoned, abandoned their up-to-now successful policy of divide and rule by making the new Grand Prince responsible for collecting and passing on all of the tribute and taxes from all of the Russian cities and princes. So from now on, the Grand Prince was the main man. And then finally, and point number six, there's the character and achievements of Ivan himself. Because having reached agreement to be the tax collector general, he made sure that he delivered the exact amount of cash due on the correct date without fail. And this further strengthened his position with the Mongols. Ivan also pursued the policy of the relocation of people to his principality by inviting them in and making Moscow a safe place to live and do business. For example, he cracked down hard on crime, particularly theft. And internal peace and order, together with the absence of any Mongolian raiding in the Moscow principality, was mentioned in the chronicles as great peace, silence and relief in the Rus lands. Ivan also made Moscow, and himself, very wealthy by maintaining his loyalty to the Horde. Hence he is known by the nickname Kalita, or the money bag, and he used this wealth to, and I'm doing inverted commas now, or air quotes, give loans to the neighbouring Russian principalities, with the result that they gradually fell deeper and deeper into debt, and this is something that would eventually allow Ivan's successors to annex them. And indeed, people called Ivan the gatherer of the Russian lands, as he brought up plots all around Moscow, 
very often the poor owners sold their lands willingly. And so in one way or another, Moscow grew, and a number of cities and provinces also joined the Moscow Principality, Ugolich in 1323, the new Principality of Belozero in 1338, and the Principality of Halic in 1340. Kalita's greatest success, however, was convincing the Khan in Sarai that his son, Simeon the Proud, should succeed him as the Grand Duke of Vladimir, and from then on this position almost always belonged to the ruling house of Moscow. Well, we've reached 1340 as promised. The only other thing to mention is that Ivan Kalita died in Moscow on the 31st of March in that year. During his relatively short reign of 12 years, his actions and policies had completely reshaped the Rus landscape. And in the next few episodes, we'll see his heirs make sure that Moscow continued to dominate the Rusiskaya Zemla with just a few blips along the way. And we'll look at one of those blips in the next episode. Uh, and blips is English understatement. Uh, you'll soon, you'll see why when you tune into the next episode. Okay, that's where we'll end things for this week. Uh, well done if you made it to the end. I know it was tough going. Next time, just when you would expect Ivan's sons and heirs to build upon his impressive legacy, they are instead they are instead completely blown away by another deadly enemy that arrives from the east. Plus, we'll be turning a glance to the western borders and checking out the situation with one of the Rus's neighbours, Lithuania. So until then. Stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll see you all soon.